Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast and the start of a brand new season, season 11 to be exact. And this is going to be a great one because we're building up to KBB Birmingham and the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2024. And we're kicking it all off with a two-parter, looking at the results of the KBB Review Retailer Survey 2024. It's our biggest ever survey of independent kitchen and bathroom retailers looking at some of the key questions. Just what is the average project cost of a kitchen or bathroom? What do retailers really think about the overall market? What challenges are they dealing with? How do they rate their suppliers? What's happening with footfall, conversion rates and order value? And what confidence do they have for the potentially difficult times ahead? We've teamed up with the Boffins at Eureka research to survey over 500 retailers and in this and next week's episodes we'll be discussing some of the results with a very special panel we have liz patling jones from lima kitchens in milton Keynes, kenny look from look and fuller in billericay alex jenman from gainsborough kitchens in well gainsborough in lincolnshire and simeon gabriel the managing director of hetic uk so it's part one this week part two next week but first Yes, our special survey pair of episodes are brought to you with the support of our 2024 KBB Review research partner, Hetic. We couldn't have done this amazing survey without them, so huge thanks to them. You can find out all about them at hetic.com. That's H-E-T-T-I-C-H dot com. And that link is in the episode description. So let's jump in and meet our guests in no particular order. We have Liz Pantling-Jones from Luma Kitchens. Hello to you. Hi, Andy. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. I've got Kenny Look from Look and Fuller. Hello, Kenny. Hi, Andy. I've got Alex Jemman from Gainsborough Kitchens. Hello, Alex. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having us on. No, thank you. And we have Simeon Gabriel from Hetic. Good day to you, Simeon. Good day, Andy. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Now, we've got a lot to talk about here, but we need to start, I think, with the uh, very brief introductions. There's a lot of you to get through. So, uh, Liz, let's start with you. Give us a 10-second overview of Lima Kitchens. Um, so we are a small independent showroom. There's just one of us, a team of 10 directly employed, split over designers, project coordinators, and we've taken a step to employed installers as well. So we're, we're growing and expanding the way we work as well. Brilliant. Uh, your turn, Kenny, the 10-second explainer of Look and Fuller. Very similar to Liz, actually. We're an independent bath and retailer, lucky enough to win a KBB award a couple of years ago. We employ our staff directly. We've got teams. We've got four different teams of installers, two designers, marketing, myself, project manager and accounts. So we're growing all the time, which is great, based in Billericay in Essex. Right, over to you, Alex. Tell us about Gainsborough Kitchens. Okay, Gainsborough Kitchens, we're based in Gainsborough, Lincolnshire. We specialise in kitchens, but we also offer bathrooms, bedrooms, offices, now media walls. We started in 1998, so we're in the 25th year, and I've been in the trade for about 35 years. Okay, and finally, Simeon, sum up your huge global company in 10 seconds. <laughs> so I'm the managing director of the UK subsidiary of Hetic. Hetic is a multi-billion euro business based out of Germany. It's a family business. It's fourth generation. It's been in business since 1888. We produce furniture fittings, so hinges, runners, drawboxes, etc. And we export those all around the world. 
Brilliant. Well done. Okay, so for those keeping track, we have a retailer that sells only kitchens, one who sells only bathrooms, and one who sells both. It's almost like I've planned it this way. Let's talk numbers, and I, and I want to start with the ones that I suspect underpin almost all the others, and that's that's the ones that indicate the state of the of the market. Now, in this survey, just over half of independent retailers, we asked we asked over five hundred of you, just over half, fifty percent said their inquiries and footfall were down, which is not great, but. The flip side of that is uh, a fifth, 20% said they were up, which is quite significant, and a quarter or so said that they'd actually stayed the same. So what that really says is 50% of retailers said inquiries were down and 50% said they were about the same or up. Now, there was a difference between kitchens and bathrooms and kitchens came out worse with over 60% saying they have less inquiries. So look, Liz, let's come to you first. You're our kitchen person here. Where do you sit in that breakdown? Are you up or down or static? I did the survey and answered down at the time, but we've had a really good start to the year, which makes me feel that there's a little bit of averaging across the year happening and a little bit more hope for the future. I think for us, we had expected the post-summer holiday boom, which never really materialised, which speaking to other retailers seemed to be a really familiar story. But having said that, a lot of the leads were of um, higher quality. So that was also promising for us. Okay, so it's, it's unpredictability and uncertainty yeah. more than it is a definitive answer. Right, Kenny, how about you? You're a bathroom guy. Now, bathrooms came out that uh, only 40% of bathroom-only retailers are seeing less inquiries, better than kitchens. Where are you in that? I'd say the levelling of inquiry is relatively consistent. The difference, I would say, is the quality of that inquiry. So exactly the opposite to Liz. We pitch ourselves to be kind of mid to high-end supply and fit. And what we are getting more of is a little bit more value customer coming through the door who maybe doesn't have the level of investment we would normally expect from our customers. Having said that, we are converting those as well as we ever ever have done. So I would say turnover-wise, we're pretty consistent. Um, we would like slightly better inquiries. Having said that, just this morning, we've sold five. So, oh, right. so it's a bit of an interesting one that I would say definitely this year is already picked up. The end of last year wasn't particularly great. And we're looking at new avenues to promote our business to tap into the customers we're not currently getting. Right, that's really interesting. What does mirror with Liz there is that there isn't necessarily a definitive answer to that question. What about you, Alex? You sell a bit of both. Why do you think there's a marked difference between kitchens and bathrooms, A? And B, how are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm going to echo a little bit of what they both said. I think post last summer, it really did seem to slow down a lot. I think there's a lot of people actually having decent summer holidays last year, which they haven't done for a few years. So there's a bit of spending went on on that that doesn't come to us. It's picked up a little bit at the start of this year, but we're still definitely down. Difference between kitchens and bathrooms? Well, we're 70% kitchens, and I would say we're probably doing more bathroom inquiries than kitchens. What's the reason? Probably that bathrooms are perceived as a lower value purchase. So people can sit there and think, well, we can afford the bathroom this year, we'll do the kitchen next year. In terms of the quality of leads, uh, that's interesting because almost I'm almost going to echo both comments. We are getting higher value leads, but they're ones that are not converting very quickly. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of people that want it later in the year, and they tend to be the better value ones. The lower value ones are the ones that are converting. Again, they. I agree, they seem to be at a lower spend than we would normally expect. So I'm very much echoing both the previous comments. <laughs> and how many kitchens have you sold this morning? 
Unfortunately, <laughs> I'll plead the fifth and say I haven't been into work this morning. I'm doing this from home. So I don't know. Probably hundreds. <laughs> so look, Simeon, you're the bigger picture guy here. Are these numbers reflected in your reading of the of the wider market in terms of of orders coming through? Yeah, I mean, what we've been tending to see and certainly talking to retailers and bigger manufacturers out there is that the high end of the market has been relatively unaffected. Mid-range people are proceeding with caution, so it doesn't surprise me that some of the guys there are saying that people are coming in and then maybe taking a little bit more extra time to make their decisions. And the lower end of the market's been quite significantly um, affected. The interesting thing for me from the survey was just how high the conversion rate is generally. That shows the, the power of independent retail from my point of view. It's one of the reasons why we did this survey. A lot of the numbers that come out of this market tend to lump everybody in together. You know, it's just how many kitchens are sold? What is the value of our kitchen? But of course, that factors in Howden's and everybody else. And there aren't really great numbers around independent retail specifically. And when you see what the differences are, conversion rate is one, you can really understand the value that you guys have. That's footfall and inquiries here, but you know, you've got to turn inquiries into orders, right? So the next question we asked was about how far ahead order books are. Because I always think that's a really good measure of the robustness of things. Just 58% of retailers said their order book was two or three months ahead. And nearly a quarter said it was between four and six months, with 10% saying it was even more than that. But 17% said their order book was less than two months. So, Liz, let's come back to you. What does a good order book look like? What's a healthy one look like for you? So we have um, recently taken on an employed fitter, which means that our lead times have shrunk considerably. So without him, we would be looking, probably booking around June time. But as we've taken on that extra capacity, we're now looking the end of April, start of May kind of area. So that's skewed a little bit from our historical log. But for me, I would... I would like to be able to comfortably assess all of my work, be able to get custom items made and have control over the project, especially with the size of a lot of the orders we take. So we're heavily involved with building work, flooring, so our projects could be six, eight, ten week overall, meaning that we need a lot of preparation time as well. At the moment, I would probably prefer to feel like that order book was fuller in terms of the timescale ahead, but you have to, to reflect upon business changes of the last 12 months for us as well. Yeah, I think it's right, isn't it, Alex, that the order book instills confidence, doesn't it? So what's it like for you and what does a healthy one look like for you? Uh, a healthy one for us has only ever been about two to three months ahead. I'm of the opinion that if we're starting to book four and five months ahead, then we need to increase the fitting capacity and get those jobs done so we can make more money. You can sit there thinking and working for the next 12 months, which is comforting, but doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make any more profit. You're just spreading that work out. So I'm thinking if I can work two or three months ahead, that's great. And if I get any more jobs than that to do, I'll try and get more fitters in and get those done quicker. At the moment, we are about three months ahead, but with a couple of gaps, there's a couple of big jobs, but it seems that the fitting times are being dictated more by the customers being ready than it is by us saying, right, our next available slot is this. And there are a couple of jobs that are hovering, that are confirmed orders, but, uh, you know, waiting for the, the bill to be finished or waiting for a property to sell so that the money's there to finish it and that sort of thing. So it's a fairly scrappy order book, but we are working about three months ahead and that's about where we like it. 
And what about you, Kenny? Look and Full is, is comparatively new business. What does the healthy order book look like for you? What do you think of these numbers? We are quite a new business. We just turned three years old in a couple of months' time, actually. We're, we're very lucky that when we opened, we had a very long order book. Just having the one installer, we were kind of nine months in advance, which was horrendous. We very quickly bought on two more fitting teams, and that list got down to about six months. And then about a year ago, bought on a fourth. We're now four teams, and we run four installs at one time i always like it to be around about the four to six months i think a big part of that instills confidence within the end user that oh they must be good they're booked up quite away in advance any more than kind of six months we start thinking oh are we too far in advance do we need to bring someone else on otherwise we're just losing orders which we don't want to happen at the moment we're about three to four months the ones we booked in this morning take us up to end of april i would like it to be a little bit more than that but not by much. Yeah, it's interesting that the word confidence keeps coming up there, doesn't it? Because it's the reassurance of just looking at something and thinking, okay, we're not going to have to panic next week. I mean, Simon, what do you think? We've looked at order books, we've looked at uh, footfall and inquiries. What do these numbers tell you? Are, are you concerned about the retail channel or are you thinking we're going to do okay? Well, I, I think what Kenny says there is is interesting because that reflects very much what our experience is, that if, if your order book is extending beyond the four to six month range, then end users practically, they're not going to wait around that long. What we probably saw during the COVID period was an unusual situation and we're now getting back to a more usual time frame in terms of order books and so on. The very fact that footfall is maybe down but the quality of that footfall is up is quite encouraging for where the sector's moving from here. Yeah, I want to just quickly dip into a couple of numbers that while not very surprising are a reasonably definitive answer to a couple of age-old questions, which is, what does a kitchen cost and what does a bathroom cost? <laughs> we did the survey, we asked everyone what their average project cost price was, and the average full project cost of a kitchen from an independent retailer is £27,500, and for a bathroom, it's £14,900. Look, Alex, let's go to you, because you sell both. What do you think about those numbers? Are they about right? Did they surprise you in any way? And are you now able to use them and tell people when they ask you? Uh, they are about right. They don't surprise me. And I'm very cautious when I tell people. Because of our geography, I think we attract a, a wide range of customers. And although if I analysed what we actually sold, the average cost probably is 27 and a half. A lot of the customers that come in are only looking at spending 10 and 12. So to trot that figure out would scare them off very, very quickly. Bathrooms, we're probably not managing that on bathrooms. I would say our bathroom costs are more uh, seven or 8,000. We're not a big bathroom shop. We don't have a large bathroom showroom. We have relatively small bathroom displays. We've only started back into bathrooms a couple of years ago. It was a bit of a COVID response to try and boost some sales. And although there is an occasional big job that runs 2025, uh, the majority of the bathrooms are relatively small, just in and out jobs. But kitchens, you know, we're regularly doing 30 or 40,000, but we're also regularly doing six, eight and 10,000. And it's very difficult to know what to tell a customer I, I tend to say because people will ask prices when they come in i tend to use the line well most people on a full scheme are spending between 20 and thirty thousand, but of course we can do full kitchens from under ten thousand right up to 40 and fifty thousand. where would you like to be these are average numbers obviously but i think when you look at the details you break it down a little bit they're just as interesting for example is 15 percent of kitchen rate retailers have an average project cost of over 40 grand and that's probably more than i would have guessed I think that's completely viable. 
And I think it depends how someone gets to that budget, uh, what they're including in that. If you've got your units, for us, if we if we say you've got 15,000 in units, 9,000 in appliances, five, 6,000 worktops, basic installation, and then you've got everything else that goes with it, you're going to have to rewire the kitchen. There's going to be plastering. The lights are going to be in the wrong position. They're going to want their flooring done. And that soon spirals. So if you look at the, the kind of core cost, yes, I suppose on average, I can see how the 27-ish kind of mark could be worked out. But that figure that we're giving on our quotes for projects are easily 40, 50, 60,000 to do that complete renovation and manage it for our clients. For you, Kenny, 21%. So one in five bathroom retailers have average orders over 20 grand. And again, that's more than I would have thought. This is where it gets very interesting. I think there are two very clear styles of retail showrooms within bathrooms. And I don't necessarily think it's low end, mid and high anymore. I think it's mid and high. That low end is very much going to the online marketplace or to the nationals and sheds and that kind of stuff. So I'm not surprised by that number at all. And it comes back to what's included for that 21,000. And we regularly take orders north of that. I would say our average is around 20,000. But it also comes down to, to like Liz said, uh, what they're having done. So we offer a complete turnkey service from plastering, electrician which we have a subcontractor will work with mastic ceiling painting decorating moving door frames and carpentry work as well when we opened we wanted to be that turnkey service and as a result that does have a, a price point to it doing some market research in our area we're not that much more expensive for installation than compared to other companies but it also comes down to the start of products when we talk about cost to uh, end users we're very open about the fact of a 500 pound vanity in it costs exactly the same to install as a 5000 pound vanity unit it comes down to a split between how much installation work you want and the quality of that product that you want so for us our average is 20 to 25 but we've done projects for 12,000 and we've done projects for 50,000 it really comes down to what their specific requirements are and if people want something at a very low price point they wouldn't really come to us anyway that's not really what we're known for especially with the start of our showroom people don't come through the door looking for that kind of project but I would say the average project for us is probably around 20 to 25. So I'm not surprised by that kind of percentage because I think people will always want quality and they're always going to want to have their, their personality imprinted in, in the spaces that all of us kind of design and install. These are very blunt answers to a very complicated question, right? So um, you're absolutely right. There's a huge variation in there. But I think what this really shows, Simeon, for guys like you, is it really underlines what we already know, which is the significant contribution of independent retailers in terms of value. Oh, it's, it's huge. I think a lot of people underestimate it. What we genuinely are talking about here is a turnkey service and experts. So an end user needs to have a guide who knows what they're talking about because actually the choices out there now are pretty overwhelming. So having somebody who can demystify that whole process for people and make it easy for them and manage the project from start to finish and provide the full service is huge. And it shows that people are actually willing to pay for that service because this is you know, it's an aspirational purchase it's also a huge purchase you know it's probably the single biggest thing apart from their house that they're actually going to pay for yeah we certainly shouldn't underestimate the value of the service that independent retailers are offering to end consumers all right let's move on now to i guess usps of, of retailers i suppose that's probably the best way to sum it up what retailers think sets them apart from 
competitors. Now, it's no surprise when we ask this that reputation and recommendations came out top, as you'd expect. I think about 80% chose that, which is actually probably lower than I would have guessed at, if I'm honest. The second most popular answer at about 60% was highly trained staff. And I think those two things go very much hand in hand. What I thought was interesting, and I'm going to ask you first about this, Kenny, is that having a dedicated installation team was actually ranked higher than the design of your showroom. Now, what do you think of that? Oh, I'm surprised by that, if I'm honest, because if the showroom, if you've got to climb over all the boxes in the front doorway and your sign's falling down and one of your lights is not working, are those people going to come into the showroom at all? I think you've got to have a certain appeal to get that end user through the door to start with. I think that's something that we did pretty well from the start. That branding's right and the front of the showroom is always clean, tidy and organised. That is inviting for people to come through the door. I do think that referrals play a massive part in getting those people through the door as well, into the showroom and, and having those dedicated installers, I think is a great selling feature for us. And when we talk about the service we offer, it's always about how we're a turnkey service, we're start to finish, if any problem, you come straight back to us and we'll come over the same day because our guys work for us and they're not going to be on another job somewhere else. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The idea of, of USPs, what each individual business has and what actually works through experience and then what their customers actually want to hear. I mean, Alex, you've been around a long time. Your reputation clearly very well earned. But what are your USPs? I mean, what do you actually list them as? And what are the ones that are the most important to your customers? It's very difficult. I often think about what the USPs are. I mean, the, the answer, I think, is that we're a design-led company, so the quality of our designs are going to be better than other people's and the quality of our installation service for exactly the same reasons that Liz and Kenny are saying we employ our key personnel we have the same people working for us we project manage jobs so I will say to people it's quality design quality installation which is the quality of the project management of the installation and the quality of the trades we send out there that builds your reputation uh, we've been 25 years in a relatively small town so you know we do have that strong reputation and virtually all the customers have heard of us and have been recommended to us which is great showroom yes we've, we've done a lot of work in the last year improving the standard of the showroom I think when it comes to what differentiates us from the competition you have to think who's your competition and geographically our competition seems to still be the sheds and the, and the merchants so the amount of people that will come in and say we've been to them we've been to howden's and you know your heart sinks a little bit <laughs> thinking yes okay great i can now out design them and and i've got that installation service but really you wish that people were going to more interesting higher quality places what do you think liz what are the things that your customers value the most when you're talking to them i think one of the things that we particularly worked on of recent years is the quality of our consultation and this has really been highlighted to me having taken on a new designer from one of the shed and developing the understanding of why you ask certain questions and understanding people's lifestyles understanding how long they want to live in a property if they've got hereditary diseases that, that may impact them further down the line that need to be considered and just taking that extra care and interest so from the outset we're demonstrating that we're thinking about things and approaching things in a more thorough and detailed way and then that just continues throughout the process or at least we aim for it to continue throughout the process and just tailor it to each of our clients and offer as much flexibility and guidance um, as possible. We're very much a business that likes to have kind of a handheld process so at the end of each appointment we'll discuss what the next steps are have an agreed contact and make sure they understand what we expect and we understand what they expect from us as well. 
And I think that that feels much more collaborative for our clients than they experience in many other places. It is about building a relationship, and that's what you're saying. We can get that relationship going far easier than they can by going to other people. And, and it's about trust. We build up a level of trust with customers and see them through the whole process. Particularly for independence, a reputation is almost like a capital asset. It's arguably the most valuable thing that you own, even though it's quite an intangible thing. Right, Simeon, here's one for you. Because we asked retailers what sets them apart from competitors, and only about a third chose offering the best brands. How do you feel about that? That's interesting because, obviously, in some ways, they are a brand in themselves. So the very fact that the reputation is such a strong thing and the fact that recommendation is so strong. A recommendation is the best form of advertising that you can possibly have. What it comes down to in the end is that if there's good cooperation between suppliers and brands like ourselves and independent retailers and they are able to use our brand to enhance their own independent retail brand, then we're doing our job and we're helping them to sell. I think that tells me that we need to be working harder at that and making sure that we can help independent retail to sell the value of what we do. Maybe a few years ago, and it has changed a lot, but I think there was a lot of big brands that were trying to push their independent retail showrooms into having very branded areas, very branded displays within there. And a lot of retailers were pushing back on that a lot, I think, for exactly the reasons you described, which is, well, we are the brand, not you. It is our reputation that we are selling, not yours. And I think that's that's one of the things that's really changed. I think suppliers have really started to, to listen to that a lot more, I think, and aren't putting those kind of, well, some are and some aren't, putting those levels of demands on, on showrooms. Yeah, that's very important. The word that Liz used there was collaboration. People buy from people, and that happens at every level. End users prefer to work with independent retailers because they have that kind of personal service. That's also the case when it comes to big brands working with other companies of any size. And it's really important that it is a collaborative approach. It's actually the job of the big brands to understand the business, especially retail businesses, and understand how you can add value to that process rather than trying to force a situation on them. With that statement, best brand, it's it's a subjective viewpoint as well. It depends what how you're gauging that. Is it the best terms that you're getting? Is it the best technology? Is it the best service? Is it your favourite relationship? So being able to determine what a best brand is and then portray that to your clients is also somewhat difficult. And those relationships and supply and costs and terms all change throughout the relationship with those suppliers as well. So I think that's always a little bit tricky. Yes, I always describe it as a very symbiotic relationship. You can't have one without the other. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be incredibly hunky-dory, but one can't exist without the other. One of the reasons that we project ourselves as the brand, as my colleagues do, is because the actual brands that we've got are not really USPs. Neff is a great brand, but it's not hard to get Neff from other places. Cooker is a lovely tap, but it's not hard to get a cooker in other places. So you have to sell yourselves because everything else is available from virtually most other places as well if you're not careful there's a whole podcast just in that i think isn't there yeah, absolutely <laughs> Let, let's sort of draw part one to a conclusion here by well it's a massive subject again but we're going to expand on the idea of, of installation because we've heard about the value that having your own team can bring to your to these usps but of course not everyone 
does it. In fact, thanks to our survey, two out of every five, so that's 40% of kitchen retailers, use their own fitters for less than a quarter of their jobs. And for bathroom retailers, it's a bit more mixed. Only about a quarter of them use their fitters for more than half of their jobs. So while all the reasons for doing it are very clear and very obvious, and it's a really valuable USP, and you, you all do it, why don't more people do it? Discuss. Liz. <laughs> so we still have subcontractor fitters, but I think the, the beauty of having people employed is just having that extra control and flexibility and knowing that you can manipulate your diary for your projects and your clients' needs as opposed to having to negotiate with other work as well. However, on the flip side, when you've got people who are employed, who are getting a salary, are contracted for hours there is sometimes a little bit less flexibility in staying later or going back on a Saturday morning to, to finish things off. So I think I think there are definitely pros and cons. The biggest issue we've had with employing people, though, comes down to pay. So subcontractors, if they've been subcontractors earning 60, 70, 80,000 a year, and then you're taking on board a lot of that cost and risk covering damages, what you're offering subsequently is less. And for people to understand the the difference between that tends um, tends to be quite difficult. So I think I think that's a real stumbling block in moving towards directly employed fitters. So Kenny, what about you? Why don't more people have their own installation teams? The key word there is risk. It's awfully expensive to employ people. We all know that. Just going back to what Liz said, I actually find we have more control over the installs with our fitters over sub subcontractors we do remunerate our guys exceptionally well because we are aware what they can go earn as an independent fitter we will make sure that they're not out of pocket as a result we we then take into consideration the vehicles we have to provide if they need new hand tools we'll provide them holiday pay and things which you don't get at a subcontractor so when we look at the numbers and um, we always make sure it's not worse off for them or for us and it all works out roughly the sort of same and we have to do that by paying slightly higher wages to ensure that we can get good people and we can keep good people i think that's the, that's the main thing but what i've always found is our guys because we do look after them and we have got very good people in their personality as well they will go the extra mile they are part of the company they are they are the face of the company where they're on site with the end users and all of our guys understand that and they love that, in fact, that we have got that team mentality and everyone helps each other out. And if they come stuck on something, we've got people with 35 years experience who want to share their knowledge as well. And I think we are quite unique in the way that we do have a fantastic team mentality and people want to go the extra mile because we do look after them pretty well. What do you think, Alex? You, you obviously have your own team there as well. It seems such a no-brainer. The pros vastly outweigh the cons, but there's lots of people out there who don't feel that. So why do you think that might be? Uh, possibly a lack of experience, but I'm, I'm completely in agreement with Kenny on what he's just said there. We do employ our main Blimey. fitter. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I've got a chap called Trevor who's worked for me for 10 or 12 years now. Fantastic fitter. We employ him directly. We pay him well. That is absolutely the key, just as Kenny says pay them well, look after them, and they will never want to go self-employed again. And he goes the extra mile. He puts the hours in. He will do a Saturday if he needs to do a Saturday. He he feels the same responsibility towards the customers that I do. Why don't more people do it? Uh, well, if I'm being brutally honest, I probably don't make any money on him. Uh, it's a convenience. It, it is the control of being able to do it, but you know the rate at which we pay him, it probably costs neutral. But that extra control 
that we get um, enhances our reputation, makes everything go smoothly. It's very much a cost balance. You, you have to know that you can keep them busy all year round. I would love to employ more people, but you know, I don't think I've got enough work to permanently employ an electrician, for instance, even if he's working a few days most weeks for me. I haven't got en enough work to permanently employ a plasterer or a tiler. But if I did, I would love to do it. Uh, it's definitely the better way of working. I think for most people, they just think, well, what if we're not busy? What if he's kicking his heels for a few weeks? What if they go on sick? But no, make, make the leap, employ somebody, pay them well, and you'll not regret it. Sorry, just to jump in on that, if you have your own fitters, the idea of not making money on an install blows my mind. <laughs> it's standard, though. Well, I'm not saying we don't make money overall on an install, but it's what you charge him out at a day and, and what you pay him a day and not that dissimilar figures. Charge more. I know, I know it's a very easy black and white answer. <laughs> but, <laughs> I apologise. But what you get then, so all of our salaries are taken from what we can charge from self-employed fitter. We then work back, as Kenny has said, the cost of the van, the cost of tools, the cost of employers, national insurance, public liabilities, all of those things then come up and then you're you're left at the figure of what you can pay someone. And to be able to get that balance of someone with the right skills and approach, you have to pay that out. You have to you have to keep that balance there. And unless you then up all of your subcontractors as well, which some of these guys are on three hundred and fifty, four hundred pounds a day, it's really difficult to then up that Again, especially when, when you're already in a competitive market. Maybe we're just really, really lucky. I'll throw some random numbers out there, but as an average, our installers cost us by the time we've done fuel, vehicle, holiday tax, it works out roughly about £250 a day. Now, I know that I want to make on any bathroom sale between 40 and 45% margin. And then we work from, they cost us that, we must sell out at this per day to ensure that we are profitable. And if that means that we don't get as many, but we do higher value stuff and that's kind of where we put ourselves as a business that we now focus on that mid to high end and do charge more than slightly more than other people because we can offer the premium service that our guys that can come back to us with any problems we're not dealing with any subcontractors and that for us again we've mentioned it before that usp for us that is our usp yes we do charge 15 20 more but this is what you get for that 20 percent well, look, the clock has beaten us here on part one. I think if we've learned two things, one is that we all need a Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the other thing that I've learned is that I really need to go and become a kitchen or bathroom fitter with the kind of numbers <laughs> that you lot are floating about. So, you have to be down south. I don't think you're going up north. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely need to retrain. That's the end of part one. There's so much more to talk about from our KBB Review Retail Survey 2024. So fear not, we will be getting the band back together next week for part two. But for now, until next time, thank you to you all. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, that was part one of our look at the KBB Review Retailer Survey 2024. So a huge thanks to Liz, Kenny, Alex and Simeon for all their time. I'll be dragging them back next week to do it all again for part two. A huge thanks again to our 2024 research partner, Hetic, for all their support. You can find out all about them at hetic.com. And of course, don't forget the time is running out for you to book your tickets for the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2024. It's on March the 4th at the Hilton Birmingham Metropole. And of course, that is the Monday night of the KBB show there at the NEC. You can find out everything you need to know at kbbreview.com forward slash awards. And all the links here are in the episode description. See you next time.